0: I'm going to turn that back on. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Book of Mark once more. The Book of Mark, as we make our way through this wonderful gospel account from Mark, Mark chapter four this morning. Mark chapter four. We've been take a took a break from the Book of Mark for our missions conference. It was wonderful to have Dr. Patrick O'Dell with us. He's the president of Baptist Mid-Missions, and certainly, if you'd like to give uh, a Love offering to him, just make sure that you designate that in your offerings. But we're in Mark chapter 4 and picking up where we left off. As we're turning to Mark, let me suggest to you that television, actually, has a unique effect and is uniquely affecting, problematically, the church. And let me just say, as I say that, I'm not preaching against the moralistic elements of television or whether or not you should have one. I have one, and I enjoyed watching Ohio State win yesterday But consider the, yeah, you're welcome, yeah. (laughs) But I do want to say, consider the medium of television. Because the television has done to our ability, or we could say our inability, to think. Neil Postman wrote a fascinating book entitled Amusing Ourselves to Death. This is not a Christian book, but it's certainly an excellent resource if you'd like to read it. Postman establishes that because we are no longer a print-based culture, the whole process of how we think, our attention spans, and all the things around them have radically changed. Postman says in his book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, it is not that television is entertaining, but that it has made entertainment itself the natural format for the representation of all experience. The problem is not that television presents us with entertaining subject matter, but that all subject matter is presented as entertaining. Postman then addresses the whole matter of religion and church and the television evangelist. And he talks about, not from a religious perspective, but just from an entertainment perspective, how it has affected not our theology, but in terms of the medium, how the medium has drastically affected the message. And now, according to him, churches are effectively changing their medium to fit a more entertainment-driven society. Now, this creates a major problem for us. I only quote him. He's, again, not coming from it from a Christian perspective, but he's addressing what he's seeing in the culture. And this creates what we would say is a problem. How can we continue to place a priority or a primacy on preaching as the means of grace in a culture where people are not willing to follow preaching, but they're not just not willing to follow preaching, they may even be unable to follow preaching. What is our responsibility in a culture where people are so entertained that they come and they suddenly hear preaching and it's not that they are always unwilling. At times, they are unable to listen, to think for themselves. We are a print-based church in one way. We are a word-based ministry. And in a culture that has gone away from the print medium and more towards the entertainment medium, Do we change our message? Do we change our medium? Well, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21 says, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. So we don't have an option to change our medium, and certainly we don't have an option to change our message. So the question is, what is your responsibility as a hearer of God's word, because God intended for you, and for all peoples of all generations, on all parts of the world, to understand him through his word, and he hasn't changed his medium. In Mark chapter 4, we have a stunning parable that indicates a stunning shift in the ministry of Jesus which lends to the discussion that I just introduced to you. Now this parable is, uh, is it found in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. And it's often referred to as the parable of the sower, but is more correctly called the parable of the soils. The truth of the matter is, it is not, even as your Bible headings may say, the parable of the sower. The reason for that is there is only one sower in this story, and he is the same throughout the story. In fact, he is not directly identified in the story so that our attention is not drawn to the sower. It is not the power parable of the sower. It is also not the parable of the seed. There's only one seed in the story, and it is the same seed that is scattered by the same sower throughout the entire parable. So it is not the parable of the seed either. It is the parable of the soils. The focus is upon the soils, and there are four different soils mentioned here, and this is the primary emphasis made by Jesus as he gave this parable of the soils. Some soil is hardened and packed down, other soil is shallow and superficial, still others is thorn-infested, and yet there is a good soil that is, we could say, receptive, productive, and prolific, And it is to that soil that the point of the parable is being written. And so Jesus says, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, Mark accounts and says, And he began to teach them by the seaside. And there were gathering unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things, many parables, and he said unto them in, in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, There went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass that as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up, and some fell on the stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of the earth, but when the sun was up, it was scorched because it had no root, and it withered away, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit, Another fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased and brought forth some 30 and some 60 and some an 100. And he said unto them, he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the 12, asked of him the parable. What did it mean? And he said unto them, unto you it is now given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables." That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted, and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? Don't you understand? The sower soweth the word. That's what he's sowing. The seed is the word. And these are they by the wayside, where the word is sown. That's what the soil represents. But when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately, and taketh away the word that was sown in the hearts. And these are likewise which are sown on stony ground, who, when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended." And these are they which are sown amongst thorns, such as they hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lust of the things entering in choke the word and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some an hundred. Now some commentators have actually said that the passages we just read are the most difficult of all of the passages in the entire Gospel of Mark to interpret. And I believe they insist on that because they may be missing the forest for the trees. Literally, the, the seed for the soil, if you will. The point of the parable is not the sower or the seed. The point of the parable is the condition of the soil. And the soil determines the receptivity of the seed. The soils here represent human hearts. That's what Jesus just interpreted. Human hearts under the ministry of the word of God. That's the seed. And wherever the word of God is properly explained and accurately pronounced, the issue is always the heart. We can be in danger of analyzing the messenger of the preaching more than the message frankly. We could go to a preaching service or a teaching time and say, boy, I, I, does he use, did he use his right hand or his left hand to toss the seed? Did he, was he able to flick his wrist properly as he tossed the seed out there? And we're overanalyzing the sower more than the seed, or really the soil of our hearts. But as we look at the parable, I would remind all of us that the emphasis is where we often fail to place it. It is not upon the sower, and it is not upon the seed. The emphasis is upon the soil, and primarily our own hearts as we listen to God's word. You must be a receptive listener of God's word. And wherever the word of God is taught, preached and read, there are always and only four responses. There are no other categories of responses. There are always and only four responses, and Jesus, through parable story, gives us an illustration of what those responses look like. And the point is that the preaching of God's word is always primary, it is always primary. In fact, the very setting of, the, of this ongoing story uh, points to the ongoing primacy of preaching. This begins at, and gets to the heart of our understanding of the parable. Interpreting scripture always is done by looking at the context. And the context of this setting points to Jesus recognizing that teaching ministry is primary. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. And look what happens. Notice the timing of this setting. The timing of giving this parable is intentional by our Lord. He has been preaching the word of God all through Mark 1 and 2. And there have been a variety of responses. Christ has been received by some in the early chapters of Mark. Christ has been rejected by many others in those same early chapters. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of Mark 2 has been called a devil by the religious leaders of Israel, and in the same chapter, members of his own family have said he's lost his mind. There's been quite the different responses. It's not difficult for us to imagine that the disciples of our Lord Jesus have become maybe discouraged at this point. They would, no doubt, have begun to ask some questions within their own hearts, if not out loud. Are we following the right man? Do we have the right message? Do we need to alter the message to make it more acceptable to the populace? Are we on the right mission? Have we undertaken the right ministry? There were people receiving the message, but there were many who were blatantly, arrogantly rejecting it. And In response to this polarizing environment, Jesus now gives this parable. Now why such opposition to the message of our Lord? Why such rejection? And as Jesus gives this parable, it is to underscore that the issue is not the messenger and the issue is not the message neither one of those need to be changed. Rather, the determining factor in the ministry of the Lord is the issue of the hearts of man. Any failure in their ministry is a failure not in the message, but in the condition of the human heart to receive that message. The timing of the story is intended to encourage the disciples then that the word of God goes forward, there will be three of the four groups who will reject it. But praise the Lord, there will be one fourth who will receive. And if there is rejection, you must not change the message. And if there is refusal, you must not alter the mission. Instead, pray the Lord of the harvest to cultivate the soil so that the same gospel message will prolificate in the hearts of all these groups. This setting is meant to encourage a discouraged disciple group. But notice the teaching that takes place at this setting. Teaching was at the heart and soul of Jesus' ministry. It says in verse 1, And he began to teach... Again, Jesus was always teaching the word. Again, indicates that this was a continual, habitual focus of his ministry. Friend, did you know Christianity is a teaching religion? It is not an empty routine and mindless ritual. Rather, Christianity is one that is built upon the full disclosure of the truths of God in the hearts of men. All true Christianity is built upon the rock solid teaching of God's Word. That is what we find in this setting. Jesus is teaching again. This should not be a surprise because this is what Jesus did. And then, if this is what Jesus did, then this is what we should do. This is the teaching. And I want you to notice also the gathering at this setting. This is the height of the popular ministry of Christ. We read rather something interesting in verse 1. It says, such a very great multitude gathered to him. A very great multitude. And in the first three chapters, we have read of the gathering multitudes of Christ. If you look at your Bibles, you'll see in chapter 1, verse 3, it says the whole city gathered to hear Jesus. That's a pretty big group. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, many were gathered together Insomuch as there was no room anymore. That's how big this group is now gathering. In chapter 3, verse 7, it says, A great multitude from Galilee followed him. In chapter 3, verse 8, it says, A great multitude. But now, in chapter 4, it exceeds all of this. Look what it says. It says in verse 1, A very great multitude. This is a vast assemblage of people. It has been said that this is the largest gathering to ever sit under the preaching ministry of Jesus while he was on earth. This is a significant amount of people. But how did they hear? That might be a question. This is a huge crowd. Mark 3 verse 9 tells us that Jesus saw that this issue was coming. He was aware that there was going to be a gathering crowd. And it says in verse 9, And he spake to his disciples, that a small ship would wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Christ knew that this was coming, so he prepared a water pulpit, if you will. But you may wonder, how can a crowd that size possibly hear one man talk? Is that even possible without a microphone or a sound system? Verse one, it says, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. What we are to surmise from this is that there is a rising up of the seashore made a natural amphitheater where Christ could speak. Historians and archaeologists have found what they believe to be the exact place where this happened. There's a little inlet in the north side of the Sea of Galilee that has now been called the Cove of the Sower. This cove forms a calm, quiet, Natural amphitheater. In fact, in 1976, an acoustical study was done by Kobe Chrysler and was published in his study in the magazine Biblical Archaeology. Chrysler concluded that up to 15,000 people could sit on the hillside of the Cove of the Sower and every single one could have heard Christ effectively when speaking in a normal to loud speaking voice. He also concluded that the natural calm waters would have acted like a a reflector of Christ's voice. Christ did not stumble upon this cove by accident. As the God who knows everything, Christ chose this cove on purpose. And as the creator, Jesus created this cove on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, knowing that one day he would sit in a boat and proclaim to thousands his message. It's as if Jesus said, okay, it's time to summon the boat. I'm going to preach to 15,000 people. Do we know exactly where it is? No, that's all speculative. What we do know is that Jesus intended to gather a crowd to hear him preach. And the setting indicates that Jesus said, it's time for the word to go forth. Now you on this hillside, be receptive. And the story used now as he teaches points now to the ongoing primacy of preaching. On this occasion, Jesus teaches by the use of parable, which is the telling of the story. And notice the shift in Jesus' teaching ministry that now takes place. It says, and he taught them many things in parables. The word parable comes from the Greek, which means something alongside of. Para is Greek, which means beside or alongside. We say parallel. Balain means to throw. So the idea of a parable, really, the idea is to throw or place two things side by side. A parable places a story next to the truth that it is intended to be taught. So that the story illustrates the truth. A parable in its simplest definition is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. What is interesting is that with the larger crowd, they only receive the story. They will not receive the truth that it represents. When the larger crowd is dismissed and he is gathered with the 12 and perhaps a few more, he will lay down the truth next to the story. And Jesus states why he is doing this. It says in verse 11. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables, that seeing they may see and perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven. Now what is going on here is a further ramification, I believe, of the unpardonable sin of Mark chapter 3 the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. In chapter 3, verse 29, we read Jesus sternly say this in verse 29. He that shall blaspheme the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now there are those in this crowd, in chapter 4, who have crossed the line with God. And Jesus now withholds any further truth. Has he already given them the truth? Go back to chapter one. In chapter one, Jesus has already given the same keys to unlock the parable we find now in chapter four. Do they know this truth? Absolutely. It's been declared by John the Baptist. It was revealed in full by Jesus. It was exclaimed more fully in chapter two and more fully still in chapter three, but they still yet reject it. And Jesus says, I will now teach you in parables without giving you the interpretation so that you must still comprehend the truth. You need to think. But with the disciples, who have been responsible to the truth to this point, Jesus will give them further keys. Now why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, he taught in parables because a parable places a story Next to the truth that is intended to be taught, so that the story becomes the illustration to the truth. The truth already being true, by the way. It's not as though Jesus invented new truth. That's kind of impossible. Truth is either true or it's not true from the foundations of the world. So, why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, he taught in parables because parables spark interest in the leaders or the listeners. People are immediately drawn to a story. People get their attention drawn to stories. He taught in parables to encourage people to think. Parables are thought-provoking. Jesus was not telling this to be interesting, but in order to be insightful, in order to be instructive. He was provoking profound thought. God does not lead you to salvation by bypassing the central processing units which reside between your ears. God wants you to think. And he taught in parables because parables are very memorable. A parable has a unique way of attaching itself to our minds and remaining with us. And he taught in parables to make the truth plain. They are very effective forms of teaching because they enable the listener to visualize the truth and a picture is worth a thousand words. And yet, he taught in parables to conceal from unbelieving ears who had already heard the truth of the gospel again and again and again, but in their day of opportunity, had refused it. And so as Jesus begins to tell this story, he begins with a very attention-gathering word. Here's what he says in verse 2. Hearken, the King James says. The NASB says, listen to this. There was no boring instruction here to enter into this story. It's not as though, hey folks, You know, I need you to put on your thinking caps for a moment. I'm going to give you some kind of instructions before I launch into my parable. Nope, hearken. Listen to what I'm about to say. And then he says in verse 2, behold. It's like a double one, right? Look at this right now, is what he's saying. It's a double attention gathering word. It's as if, you can imagine, the crowds are gathering around and murmuring and talking, perhaps even a whisper, but a whisper with 15,000 people is going to be loud. Jesus gets in his boat and cries out, perhaps, to get their attention, hearken, and everybody just gets quiet. And now he's going to say something. And he's going to say that the sowing of the seed points to the ongoing primacy of preaching. So Jesus tells a story. And he uses a farming analogy. And now see what Jesus says. There there went out a sower to sow. The sower would grab the seed from a leather pouch or satchel and begin to broadcast that seed in every direction. He'd be walking to the field and he would just be throwing the seed. This is where we derive the English word broadcast. Broadcast as a television tower or radio tower will broadcast the signal or program being sent out in all different directions. And the whole issue would be whether or not your television set is turned on. If it's not on, you're not going to receive it. He's sending it out, but you have to actually have it on to get it. That is what the sower is doing. He is broadcasting. He is gathering as much seed as possible And he is throwing that seed into the open field as far as he possibly can. And there's a great lesson here in our evangelism we can never discern the condition of human hearts. The Bible actually says only God knows the hearts. If we restrict our evangelism only to those whom we perceive are good soil, we will be sadly mistaken. It is God at work beneath the surface of human hearts. It is our responsibility not to be sizing up the soil. Well, maybe they would be. there. That's a good candidate for conversion. It is our responsibility to be broadcasting the word of God. We must be scattering as much as we can. We must be reaching into the satchel, grabbing as much into our hands as we possibly can, and throwing it out as far as we possibly can, because we don't know the heart. That's the point. Only God knows the heart. But as this story begins, the sower went out to sow. Even so, we must be sowing. Yet, that is not the primary emphasis of this parable. Jesus now quickly passes on to the primary point. And the significance of the story points to the ongoing primacy of preaching. As the seed is scattered, all the difference would be found in how the seed is received. Just as a cell tower will broadcast a signal, if my cell phone is not on, it doesn't really work for me, Right? I might have bought the fanciest, coolest, newest iPhone because they always have to come out with a new one so that they can get more of your money from you. And then they got to make sure when they come out with a new one that your old one doesn't work as well as it used to, right? (laughs) And if I have the fanciest one that ever was and I never turn it on, what good is that? Well, it's a nice, really expensive paperweight. But that's about it. Even so, if you receive a seed on the soil... If the soil is not ready to receive the seed, what good is the seed to the soil? It is not good. And so Jesus presents four types of soil, but there are ultimately only two. You could categorize them that way. There is the soil of unfaith, if we can make up a word, and there is the soil of faith. And the first three fit into the first of that category. They are bad. And only the last one is good. So why present four types? Because whenever the seed is sown, all four types are present. In fact, we've seen all four in the first three chapters of Mark, as we'll see in a moment. Whenever the gospel is preached, nothing happens, everything happens. There is no neutral response to God's word. There is only and ever only either a negative or a positive response. And that truth is evident in this parable. We have hard and dry soil. There are those who see the seed, and it is snatched away before it becomes even rooted. This is in verse 15. And there are the ones along the path where the word is sown. And when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Who have we seen so far in Mark's gospel with this kind of heart? This is the seed that is sown on the path that has been walked often. In fact, it has been walked often so many times. The seed has been sown so many times on that particular path. The sower may have a normal path he walks as he sows his seed. And, And this is the path he always walks on. So actually, as he always walks on it, they actually receive more of the seed, we could say, But because they've been walked on so much, it's been trampled down. They no longer are receptive to it. Who in the Gospel of Mark so far have we already seen that have heard the seed often, but perhaps so much so that they've now become hardened to it? And the answer is the Pharisees. They don't accept Jesus as their Lord. They oppose him as their enemy. And the more Jesus speaks truth to them, the more their heels dig in. And the more he teaches, the harder their hearts get until we come to the middle, to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and it is that group who starts the crucifixion cries. This is the scariest heart of all. It's completely closed to Jesus. It's uninterested in hearing him, and therefore unable to hear him. And this is the natural heart of man. Paul speaks of, and it doesn't matter how religious they appear on the outside, Their heart tells the truth. What happens to this heart when they hear? Satan immediately comes and he takes the word away. C.S. Lewis picks up on this idea in his fictional book, The Screwtape Letters. It's a series of letters of counsel from one senior demon, Screwtape, to a junior demon, Wormwood. And Wormwood has been assigned a man to keep from coming to faith in Christ. And in one letter, Screwtape, the senior demon, writes to Wormwood, the junior demon, and says, it is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. In context, Screwtape is talking about prayer. He says, do all you can, dear Wormwood, to keep our man from praying. Take out the desire. Satan wants to take away your desires for God, no matter how small they may be. One prayer can do them in. That's why Peter tells us, be sober-minded. So, Wormwood, be mindful and watchful that he doesn't follow Peter's words. Please don't let your heart get to that place. If there is a soil in America that we are most prone to, it is this one. Because the seed has been sown often. How many Americans could at least finish John three sixteen, Or have at least heard it before. And the more they hear it, the more they say no, the more hardened they get to it. There is a hard and dry soil. But there is a shallow and rocky soil. Look at verse 16 and 17. And there are those ones sown on rocky ground. The ones whom, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. But they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. We see this kind of heart in the crowds that follow Jesus. They are the miracle seekers. They are there to see Jesus gladly because, boy, I've got a twisted arm, or I've got some kind of ailment, and I'd rather heal my, you heal my physical problems than my spiritual ones. This is the kind of heart that treats Jesus not as a savior, but as spiritual pixie dust. It's what we want. This is the kind of heart that treats Jesus as a guru that gives us life tips, or a genius bar to fix our broken toys, or the spiritual co-pilot, so long as we still get to keep the reins. It happens when we treat him only as positive and encouraging, not as a Jesus who steps on our toes and yanks us in a different direction. With this heart, things are good for a while. Because we've never considered his word. We've never actually chewed on it. We've never really thought through it. We've kept it shallow. We've kept it only when the sun is shining on us because the only words we want to hear from this Jesus that we've invented are the positive ones. And we don't want to dwell on any of the negative stuff. And then when the bad stuff does come, because it will, we blame our spiritual pixie dust. But that never was the true soil. It never even took root. Sure, it flashed for a moment, and it was green at that time. But when the rains really came, they washed the seed away. When things got tough, we leave him for something else. And when we treat Jesus in mere pragmatic terms, as soon as he no longer works, we'll find something else. This is the heart that's tried Jesus and found he's just all right, but not all right enough. It's the shallow and rocky soil. But then there's the crowded and anxious soil. Look at verse 18 and 19. And others are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfaithful. If I were to caution us from one of the first three kinds of soil, this is the one that I would highlight. I think it is the bad soil we see in our context, in our culture, that we may actually even be more prone to. This is the kind of heart that is just too crowded. It has too many things at the same level of importance. It upholds social status and comfort and security and personal desires alongside the things of God. It's the heart of anxiety, Worried about things out of our control because we've let so many things control us. Ray Ortland illustrates this reality with a profound image of our heart as a boardroom. He says our heart is like a boardroom. A big table, leather chairs, coffee, bottled water, white board, a committee sits around the table. This is the social self, the private self, the work self, the sexual self, the recreational self, the religious self, the childhood memories self, and other members make up the committee around the boardroom of our heart. And the committee is arguing and debating and voting, constantly agitated, divided, upset. Rarely can the committee with some, come to some kind of unanimous, wholehearted decision, because if I give commitment to the work, then my house is not out of order. And if I get my commitment to the house, then my recreational self might not be able to relax. And one way we might falsely accept Jesus is just to invite him into one of our committees. Give Jesus a seat at the table, so to speak, and give him a vote. Let him make his case before the rest of the committee members. And the rest of us will decide for or against Jesus, depending on our whims. But, if this is how we accept Jesus, then he is just one influence among others. Easily offset by the votes and voices of the other members of the heart boardroom. See, the illustration pretty fits well. We see this kind of heart in Jesus' family in the early chapters. They worry about the scene he makes. Their reputation matters to them. They grow anxious about what he says, what he does, what might happen to them if he doesn't just shut up. No wonder that leads to the anxiety of them saying, he's just lost his mind. Here's what we need. We need Jesus to come in and fire all the board members. (laughs) We need Jesus as the sole ruler of our heart. And in his grace, it takes to receive the freedom and openness to say what you say goes. And that leads then to the soft and open soil. Look at verse 20. But those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. This is the heart of Jesus' disciples. They accept his word. They follow him when it's hard. They stick with him when they don't understand. They draw near to him. They lean on him. They want Jesus. So here's the question. What kind of soil are you? How do you get good soil? We could ask. How do you get good soil? Do you get it for being a good person? If so, good by what standard? Do we get it by removing the rocks? If so, how many? Do we keep any decorative ones for our gardens? Do we get it by pulling the weeds in our lives? If so, you find weeds roots. We are all still trying to find the roots of our weed systems in our gardens because they somehow... They just keep coming back. Self-care won't produce our need. We can never be good enough. We can never remove all the rocks. We can never pull out enough weeds. There has to be another way to get good soil. Interestingly, the only gospel account that doesn't include this parable is John's gospel. But the truth, it proclaims, is very present. As Jesus makes a turn towards Jerusalem and ultimately the cross, he tells his disciples about his upcoming death. And here's what he says in John's Gospel. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. What is Jesus saying? Even in agricultural points of the gospel, (laughs) even farming communities illustrate truth parabolically. He is saying the power of the gospel is in his death. And the power of the gospel is the seed planted in the ground. Jesus is not only then the sower. He's also the seed And the fruit we need grows out of his grave. And the good soil is the one who lets the seed die, if you will. Break open in your hearts, receiving the resurrected Lord as the true salvation of your sins. And you may wonder how it is that someone can sit Two different people can sit under the very same word of God and have two totally different responses. How is that possible? There's only ever these groups. They will either receive or they will reject. And Jesus meets with his disciples at the somewhat early onset of his ministry, where crowds are beginning to gather, but as the crowds gather, they can't help but notice the animosity to Jesus is getting louder. And they wonder, is it worth it? Is he right? And Jesus gives them this story. And the story is this point. The question becomes this, what kind of soil do you have? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the illustration that Jesus gives of the soil. Lord, any time that the seed is scattered, the Bible tells us there's only ever these four different kinds of soil. Lord, we pray that there may be some who have never accepted Christ as their Savior. May today be the day of their salvation. May they. Re-